A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. For me, the memories I have of my father played professional basketball, I remember when he played for the New York Nets and the ABA, the red, white, and blue ball, and Julius Irving was one of the mainstays on that particular team and going to practices and sitting on the backstop. And this is before they had the breakaway rims. And so when Dr. J would dunk the basketball, the whole goal would just shake. You'd just <laughs> shake it for the next five minutes if you're sitting on the back of the goal. And I thought that was a pretty cool, weird experience, so to speak. Like, why am I shaking? But, you know, you realize, wow, he's bringing that much force and that much power through the rim. It was a lot of fun to, to look back on it. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now... Introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 115. Thanks for joining me. I'm excited to welcome NCAA champion, multiple all-star, and NBA sixth man of the year, Danny Manning, to the show. This is a wide-ranging conversation about Danny's life in basketball. We cover lots of topics, including his formative years of playing hoops, and his family's move to Kansas, where he starred in college and ultimately was selected first overall pick of the 1988 NBA draft. We even venture briefly into dessert food and body art, of all things. Plus, I quiz Danny on one play from his career to see how quickly he can recall it. It's an insightful discussion covering his remarkable journey of perseverance, determination, and achievement. A big thanks also to Justin Bowman for making this chat happen. The conversation was recorded just before Christmas 2020. Towards the end of the episode, I'll share another great podcast review. If you can spare a moment or two, please add your review via your listening app. It'll be most appreciated. Show notes for this episode and access to a huge archive of past episodes are available at inallairness.com. Now, onto the show. My guest today was one of the most highly touted freshmen to play at Kansas since none other than Wilt Chamberlain. He led the Jayhawks to the NCAA championship in 1988 before being selected number one pick of that year's NBA draft. He's a two-time All-Star and won the Sixth Man of the Year Award in 1998. Danny Manning, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to visiting. Thanks again for making time to speak with me today. I'd just love to briefly start off by talking about your late father, Ed Manning, He was drafted out of Jackson State University and played for nine seasons in the pros, four of which were the NBA and five in the ABA. I read that you regularly attended 
your dad's practices and games when you're a youngster. What are a few memories you do have from those formative years, Danny? For me, the memories I have when my father played professional basketball, I remember when he played for the New York Nets and the ABA, the red, white, and blue ball, and Julius Irving was one of the main stays on that particular team and going to practices and sitting on the backstop. And this is before they had the breakaway rims. And so when Dr. J would dunk the basketball, the whole goal would just shake. You just <laughs> shake it for the next five minutes if you're sitting on the back of the goal. And I thought that was a pretty cool, <laughs> weird experience, so to speak. Like, why am I shaking? But, you know, you realize, wow, he's bringing that much force and that much power through the rim. It was a lot of fun to, to look back on it. For me, I had a lot of autographs growing up. The ABA did a great job of marketing and they always had some type of item to be signed, whether it was a basketball or programs and things of that nature. And I remember going and getting autographs from Billy Cunningham, Matt Calvin, Julius Irving, Super John Williams, and just a, a dumb kid. I don't know what I did with those. I remember I used to take the basketballs out and play with them because I wanted to go shoot hoops. And I was playing with an autograph ball that had Julius Irving, Dr. J's autograph on it. And I it just didn't register for me. For me, it was those moments. And, and it kind of comes back full circle for me as a player because once I got to the NBA, whenever there was an all-star game or there was an NBA function, I would always be able to cross paths with somebody who, Danny, I remember you when you were this tall or you had no interest in the game of basketball. And to see those guys and to hear them talk about seeing me when I was a youngster, it's, it's kind of cool. So those are the memories that I have. And probably the biggest, most fond memory I have was team barbecue with the Nets team and all the kids were lining up to take all the players and their food. And somehow I got tasked with giving Dr. J his plate of food. So that was kind of cool for him. I got to deliver Dr. J's barbecue to him at our team get together. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'd be probably too nervous. I'd have the plate and I'd be shaking trying to hand him the plate. <laughs> I'm sure I was. I'm sure I was. Yeah. Just in terms of your dad's run with the Carolina Cougars, in two of his three seasons, he was coached by future Hall of Famer Larry Brown, and that's a gentleman whose name obviously had strong links to your family for many decades since then. Do you recall when you first met Larry as a youngster, and obviously you'd reconnect in your high school years, and I'll get to that shortly. My father played for the Carolina Cougars, and, and Coach Brown, um, the best coach I ever played for, made me a better person, made me a better player, but he was still doing things when he coached the Cougars that he was doing when he coached us at Kansas and he was doing when he was coaching an NBA. He's a teacher. He's, he's showing you how to hold the ball. He's showing you how to pass the ball when you're a certain age or you're, you're really young. He's telling you the different things that you need to be able to do to make yourself a better player. And so for me, he was always a teacher. You know, very thankful for that relationship because he helped prepare me not only for life, but for basketball after we left Kansas. Coach Brown is somebody that when he got the coaching job at Kansas, reached out to my father and, and hired my dad as an assistant coach. At the time, my father had recently retired from the NBA and was um, driving a truck, was doing some construction work, and he was also a part-time assistant at North Carolina A&T with Gene Littles, who played with my dad on the Carolina Cougars as well. And so Coach Brown offered my dad a great opportunity, and I guess the rest is history. It was a challenging move because we moved days before the start of my senior year of high school. But once I got to Lawrence, Kansas, the people were wonderful. I consider that home now, especially that area. And met my wife, had great teammates in college. We won a championship. We graduated. Our kids graduated from Kansas as well, Taylor and Evan. And so for me, it's 
it's been a very special place and I'm very grateful to have those experiences. I didn't know a lot about your high school career. I knew you were an outstanding talent at a young age. But in 1983, as a junior, you led your Page Pirates to an undefeated 26-0 and season and won the Class 4A high school title. Entering that final, from what I've read, you averaged almost 20 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists and 4 blocks per game, and you had 19 points in the championship game. That was apparently in front of more than 10,000 fans at Greensboro Coliseum. How did it feel to win that high school title playing in what I believe would have been the same arena that your dad played in as a member of the Carolina Cougars? It was a surreal feeling. It was a lot of fun. Our Page Pirates team, we were really good. We had guys that played college basketball. Mike Foster went to South Carolina. John Newman went to James Madison. We had guys that were great football players. Haywood Jeffries went to NC State and played in the NFL for a long time with the Houston Oilers. Todd Ellis was a big-time quarterback. Stafford Moser was big-time quarterbacks, and those guys went to South Carolina and Wake Forest, respectively. So, And the list just goes on. Mac Jones was a football player that played basketball. We had a really, really talented team. We had a bunch of guys that got along who liked each other. And my sophomore year, we we didn't fare as well as we wanted. There was kind of a, a pact or a bond made with guys coming back saying, hey, we're going to make sure we do whatever we can to give ourselves a chance to be successful. And Page High School at that time, and still presently, we're a sports juggernaut, just to be honest with you. And so our football team was playing for the state championship, and we didn't have everybody on our roster. And we were still able to win games because our, our talent was so good. We had a lot of guys, at Vaughn Green, who didn't start for us, but was probably was our sixth man, Churchill Brown, David Brockman. We had a, a bunch of guys that were really good basketball players that we were able to hold down the fort until our football players joined us. You couldn't officially sign an early letter of intent until November the 9th of 1983. However, you did verbally commit to play with the Jayhawks at a press conference inside Kansas's Allen Fieldhouse in September. Was the press conference rather low-key or was there overwhelming celebration for the fact that you'd signed on to, to play with Kansas? I don't even remember that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't even remember that. I didn't know anything about the history of Kansas. And once my father started working there, he was bringing back different books and programs and media guides. And I started reading and it's like, Wilt Chamberlain, Jojo White, Walt Wesley. These guys' names that I knew of because I followed them professionally to know that they played there. And then you talk about Fog Allen. The list goes on and on. And I fell in love with the history and tradition of the program, first and foremost. And then from there, I... Going to those games as a senior in high school and seeing the support and walking into Allen Fieldhouse and feeling the energy, feeling the uniqueness of that facility or that venue was something I wanted to be a part of. I've got the uh, ability to access some newspaper archives to see what I could find. And I found some fascinating tidbits about your career and uh, some of the things I I hope to ask you about as we chat today. So it might be testing your memory banks, Danny. I'm not sure how we'll go. I'm sorry if I can't go back that far. No, no, not at all. We'll see how we go. I just read this morning, just before we connected today, that your first game with Lawrence High School, you had an outstanding performance. That was 25 points, 11 rebounds, nine blocks, six steals, and two assists. Do you remember the first time you laced it up when you played at Lawrence High School? I don't remember that, but I remember losing, I think, our second game of the year to Wyandotte High School. Um, who was a perennial powerhouse in Kansas, who eventually we lost to them again in the state championship my senior year. For me, 
moving from North Carolina to Kansas, told you it was kind of a traumatic experience, kind of a bang, bang. This is what's going on. This is what's best for our family. This is the decision that we made. So for me, getting on the court was just therapy. We've gone through our preseason conditioning and did all of our drills and going to the rec center and the community building is what they call it in Lawrence, Kansas, and playing pickup basketball with the older guys in town, trying to help get the Lawrence High School team together because at that time we only had one high school in the town. And so there was a lot of pride in Lawrence High from former players and former alumni. And so for me, just being able to get back out on the court was something I was very thankful for and, and really enjoyed. And the crowd support was tremendous. Now, I'm hoping to touch on a few topics that you don't often get asked about. One particularly I'm fascinated in, in early April of 1984, you were just one of two high school players along with Delray Brooks to get invites from Indiana Hoosiers coach Bob Knight to participate in the US Olympic trials. You joined, I think, 70 other college players, all playing for a spot on that 12-man roster at Team USA for the uh, games in Los Angeles. How important was that experience in terms of developing your game and what was it like to mix with a who's who of college talent at that time? I knew it was a a unique opportunity. Going into it, Delray Brooks and I were only two high school kids invited to the tryouts and Delray was going to be an incoming freshman at Indiana with Coach Knight. And so for me, I just wanted to go out and, and, and play and show I was deserving of an invite, not necessarily making the team, because my first couple of days, I, I don't think I did very well. I think I picked it up after that. But to be out on the court and you look out there, and, and for me, I was playing a lot of different positions. And so I could match up with Michael Jordan. And then the next game is Charles Barkley. And then the next game is Carl Malone. And then the next game is Vern Fleming. And then the next game is Joe Klein or John Concat. And it's just like, wow, these are guys that I'm following on ESPN. These are guys that I'm following in the papers, reading their box scores, seeing how many points they score, how many rebounds they get, and seeing how beloved they are for their respective universities. And so for me, it was it was a fun experience in that regard. Disappointed I didn't make the team, but I didn't deserve to make that team. Nonetheless, I thought it was a great experience for me, and it helped prepare me for basketball down the line. Just an incredible array of talent of guys that you were playing with at that time that went on to obviously be your contemporaries when it got to the the next level in college and obviously the NBA, incredible. Speaking of your college seasons, your freshman year, you averaged almost 15 points a game and you were named the Big 8 Newcomer of the Year, steering the Jayhawks to a 26-8 and record. And you progressed to the second round of the 1985 NCAA tournament. What do you remember most about that freshman season and, and your first trip to the big dance? My freshman year at Kansas was a lot of fun. I just wanted to go play. I just wanted to go help my team. I wanted to, obviously, you wanted to have a level of success, but I also wanted to make sure that I was doing things to make my teammates better. And that team, my freshman year, we had some upperclassmen, Calvin Thompson, Ron Kellogg, Tad Boyle. Those guys were the elder statesmen of that team. And Mark Turgeon was on that team as well, who's coaching at Maryland. And so for me, it was just to come in and, and try to fit in. We had a really unselfish team. I think at one point, all of our starters might have had close to 100 assists throughout the year. I mean, just because we shared the basketball and it was just a good group to be around and we're really balanced. And, you know, that was probably one of the first teams that Coach Brown had that had his markings all over it in terms of recruitment and guys being in the system and playing for him and understanding what he wanted. You talk about sharing the ball there. 
Where did that get instilled into your game? You're such a, an unselfish player throughout your whole career when you really could have dominated and been a, an offensive force just yourself, but you were always about getting players involved. Where do you think that traces back to in terms of when you were learning the game? Well, for me, learning to pass the basketball was a rite of passage in growing up and playing with older players. When you play with older players, they bring you on. The older guys get all the shots. You can bring it up the court and you pass it, but you're not supposed to shoot. <laughs> and so I had a bunch of older guys that I was playing with and made sure I understood that. And then also for me, I got a chance to see my father play professional basketball. My father was not a, a star, if you will. He was a journeyman. He was a glue guy. He had to do all the little things to maintain his spot on the roster, whether it's playing defense, getting rebounds, setting pick, diving on the floor getting the ball to the right guys at the right time. And so I started to appreciate and have a value for that type of mentality at a very early age. And that's how my father taught me how to play the game. And so from there, it just trickled down. I mean, I had great coaches in high school. Coach Johnson, who, who coached me in junior, one of my junior highs. Um, Coach Medley coached me in another junior high. I mean, I get to high school and I get coached by the legendary Mac Morris in North Carolina. Then I moved to Kansas and get coached by a great man and terrific guy in Ted Juno. And I was very lucky in the sense that they all preach the same thing. They all preach being unselfish and what can you do to make your teammates better and help your team reach the highest point. And so for me, I, I look back on all those times and, and I realized that I was very fortunate with the coaches that I had growing up once I started playing school ball. Terrific grounding there and some great fundamentals along the way. As a sophomore with Kansas, your team went an incredible 35-4 and four, and you won the Big 8 tournament and made it to the Final Four of the 86 NCAA tournament before eventually falling to the Duke Blue Devils. You were also a second-team All-American and you were named the Big 8 Player of the Year, so a tremendous season. What's maybe the most memorable moment from that second year in college if one stands out? The moments for me that stand out the most, my sophomore year in 1986, Obviously, going to the Final Four was something that all players want to be a part of, and so very fortunate to to have that experience. But for me, it was more of a motivating factor moving forward because I played terrible. I didn't have a good game when we lost to Duke. Now, all that credit goes to Duke. I mean, they, they were a much more mature, physical team, and they took me out of the ballgame. Mark Allery, Jay Billis, those older older guys put it on me, so so to speak, in terms of good, aggressive, physical style of play and did not let me get comfortable. And I didn't play well. In my mind, we didn't win the game because I didn't play well. And so that was motivation for me moving forward um, as a college basketball player. Johnny Dawkins had, I think, 24 points in that game for Duke. Yes, he did. Your Jayhawks only lost by four points. The game prior to that, when you beat North Carolina State, the great Jim Valvano had a, a fantastic quote, which was, it would be better if we could play without 17,000 people yelling, rock, chalk, jayhawk, whatever that means. I still don't know what the hell it means, but it works, is what his quote was. We'll get to the 88 championship and that runs shortly, but what, what springs to mind when you think about the, the vocal support that the jayhawks enjoyed and still do to this day? As former players playing at Kansas, we're all spoiled by the amount of love and support that we get playing for the Jayhawks, particularly when you play at home. It's special. It's unique. And everybody can say that about their own venue. But there's something a little bit different about walking into Allen Fieldhouse on a Saturday afternoon 
gear enough to play a college basketball game, seeing all the people file into the building and get into their seats and get situated. But for me, playing in front of that crowd was something that I'll cherish to my last days. And every player that's played there appreciates the, the Allen Fieldhouse faithful Jayhawk Nation. And Rock Chalk chant is the chant that, that's our victory chant. <laughs> that's our victory chant. And so once that chant comes on, fans start chanting that, they feel the game is close to being over. Now, as coaches and players, we don't always feel that way. <laughs> I was looking at your record during the 1987 uh, NCAA tournament, and in a second-round game, it was a four-point win against Missouri State. You had a career-high 42 points, 16 of 26 from the field. How did it feel to score that many points in such a, a vital game? You'd go on to meet Georgetown and uh, some future NBA players, including Reggie Williams, for one, who had a, a fantastic game later in the tournament. Playing up against Missouri State, I mean, there was a, a level of familiarity with them just because they're in a neighboring state, and Kansas didn't like Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> There's no love lost there between those two states. But mm-hmm. I remember... My teammates doing a terrific job of getting me the basketball. I caught a hot hand and they continued to come to me. It was just a lot of fun. I believe it was Coach Spoonhour's team. And Coach Spoonhour was a terrific coach and one of the better coaches in college basketball. And He believed in hard-nosed, man-to-man type of defense. And that was primarily, I think, the type of defense that we faced against them the majority of that game. And my teammates, like I said, did a great job of finding me in spots and I caught a hot hand and was, was fortunate enough to make a few shots. Just a few. Now, <laughs> yeah. something I wasn't familiar with was the 1987 Pan American Games that were held in Indianapolis. This was just prior to your senior season. You were coached by Louisville's Danny Crum, and your teammates included none other than David Robinson, who was the number one pick in the 87 draft. You had guys like Purvis Allison, Pooh Richardson, Willie Anderson, and, and Rex Chapman, to name just a handful. You won the first six games of the tournament by more than 25 points a contest, and then you ended up meeting Brazil in the gold medal game, and they stunned the U.S. and and won by five points. The great Oscar Smith torched the U.S. with 46 points. You led the U.S. in scoring at almost 15 a game. How difficult was it to deal with that loss, given that Team USA were overwhelming favorites, but also at the same time, how was the experience of playing for Team USA on home soil? Playing for Team USA is always an honor. You're always thankful for that opportunity, especially when you get a chance to have the the competition in the States. We got beat by a Brazil team that was tough, that was tenacious, that was well-coached, and they had the best player on the court, Oscar Schmidt. He was the best player on the court, and he willed his team to a win. And they were mature. They had some experience about them. They had a, a rugged quality about them as well. The majority of us were college kids that were still trying to figure it out. Um, thought we still should have won, but we didn't. But the reason we didn't win is because Brazil was better and, and Oscar Smith was the best player on the court. And that's kind of the end of that story. I mean, you hate to say one guy dominated the game, but you look at the box score and you go back and watch that game, that's exactly what he did. That's why he's a Hall of Famer. I think you guys were leading at the half, but Brazil came back and he caught fire and made an incredible number of three-point shots. Let's talk about some more happier times, though. Your senior season in Kansas. How about that? It was one for the ages, and I'll just quickly set the scene for our listener. Just indulge me for a moment. You opened the season with two losses and then won six straight. You lost one and then won three in a row. You then dropped five straight games, 
before you reeled off five-game win streak, and then you ended the regular season with two losses and three wins. So you were 17-10 and 10 overall. You then lost to Kansas State in the semifinals of the Big 8 tournament, which meant that you were actually waiting for an at-large bid to make and play in the tournament to begin with. You were also plagued with some injuries throughout that season, so quite tumultuous, some ups and downs. How confident were you that the Jayhawks would be invited to the big dance, not winning the actual conference tournament? Well, we were hoping without question that we were going to get a, a bid in 1988. Backtrack for us, we start the season out and there were some publications that had us a preseason number one team. And then we have some injuries. We have some players that Coach Brown didn't feel fit on our team. And so those guys were removed from the team. We added a couple of football players and Clint Normore and who was an all-state player in Kansas in high school, and Marvin Maddox, who was an all-state player in California, who came in and gave us some some toughness and some more depth on our team. And things just started to click for us. We were losing close games or getting beat pretty handily, and Coach Brown would come in the locker room. He would be upset. He would be disappointed. But there was always this glimmer of we're right there. We just got to tighten up a couple of things, and if we do that, then we're going to take off. And he continued to preach that message to us. And, and the guys on the team, we, we bought into that. We believed that. We didn't care who received the attention. We just wanted to be successful and win games. You didn't want to let your teammates down. We weren't the most talented team, but we were the best team because we played well together. We sacrificed for one another, and things worked out well for us at the end. You had a remarkable tournament. You scored no less than 20 points per game on the way to the championship. And in order, you disposed of Xavier, Murray State, Vanderbilt, K-State, Duke, and ultimately Oklahoma. And in that final game, you saved the best for last, 31 points, 18 rebounds, five steals and two blocks. And you also made some clutch free throws in the final moments of the game as you held on for an 83-79 to win against Oklahoma. That closed out your college career. Oklahoma actually defeated you twice during the regular season. So all that said... Do you remember most fondly about that final game? And and do you often load it back up and check it out on TV and just relive some of those moments? I've only watched that game probably in its entirety, maybe two times. One time was with my teammates at a reunion. For me, looking back, playing Oklahoma, they were coached by the late, great Billy Tubbs. And he had talented teams, Stacey King, Mookie Blaylock, Harvey Grant. Those were the the guys that led the way for that team, but they were so talented throughout the rest of their roster. And the level of familiarity we have with Oklahoma was comforting for us from the standpoint of, you know, we played them in the championship game. The game before that, we played Duke, and Duke had beaten us earlier in the year. To get to the Final Four, we had to beat K-State, who had beaten us, who snapped our home court winning streak that year. So there were a lot of levels of comfort that we had playing up against those teams in the sense of when the game was over, we'd always go back into Coach Brown's office the next day and watch the game. And he would break the game down. And it would be tedious and it would be frustrating and it would be long. It could be embarrassing because of how you played and sort of the things that you did, but we got better from it. And so each time that we lost the game, we played the game, we would watch tape and say, well, how can we get better? And we knew if we corrected some mistakes and did a better job of taking care of the basketball, executing, contesting shots and making multiple effort plays that will give ourselves a chance to be successful against anybody that we played up against. And that was kind of how the run ended for us. But for us, I mean, we got a chance to play for the national championship 30 minutes away from our campus. 
the open practice, the days leading up to that, there was jam-packed for an open practice. We're just going to run up and down the court and get up some shots and get a feel for the venue. So that was one of the best experiences we probably ever had as basketball players in college. When you talk about playing for a national championship on the stage of the Final Four, 30 minutes away from the campus. I'm almost getting goosebumps just hearing you talk about it. So I can only imagine how it must feel for you. You were also named the most outstanding player. You were the college player of the year in 1988. You left the Jayhawks with averages of 20.1 points, 8.1 rebounds, 2.3 assists, almost two steals and more than one block per game. I looked at the uh, Kansas record books yesterday. You started all but one of your 147 games and you ranked first all-time in career scoring at almost 3,000 points and you lead the, the school in rebounding overall. So just some remarkable stats there to exit the school. At this stage in 1988, the NBA draft was less than three months away. How were you preparing for the transition to the next level whilst also taking into account that the Olympics in Seoul were not too far removed either? Well, for us, the 1988 season ended. For me, it was kind of a whirlwind. You know, there's a lot of attention and notoriety placed on your team when you win a national championship. We were thankful to have and enjoyed those opportunities. But also, NBA was probably a distant thought process away, to be honest with you, because we were playing for Coach John Thompson during the Olympics, Olympic trials and things of that nature. And so that was where your mind was at. Now, there were some teammates of mine on the Olympic team that throughout the course of our time together representing USA on the Olympic team playing for Coach Thompson that some of these guys started signing their NBA contracts. I didn't have that luxury. The owner of the Clippers at the time was Donald Sterling, and he was, for lack of adjectives, I'll just say he was a unique individual. And so we, we didn't come to a contract agreement actually until the day before the start of the NBA season, and the NBA Commissioner Stern had to step in and make it happen. Going back to the Olympic team, that was our focus, was getting prepared to, to go represent our country and win a gold medal. And uh, little did we know that we would be the last amateur team to represent the U.S. because we got beat by a, a very, very talented team that had Sabonis, um, not a completely healthy Sabonis, but a, a really good Sabonis, Marshall Lunas, and they, they had Volkov, and they had some really talented players. So we, we got beat by a much more experienced team, if you will. I really appreciate you opening up. And I know some of these topics aren't ones that you'd love to reflect on for too long. And Donald Sterling, probably the less said about him, the better. <laughs> Just quickly on those Olympics, it was in late September of 88. You stormed to a 6-0 and record before being upset by the Soviet Union team. But rather than focus on that loss, I'll change things up a bit. Your final game at the Olympics was against my home country of Australia. You held on for a tight 29-point win over the Aussies and took over the bronze medals. I'm curious, how did the late, great John Thompson help you and the team put that disappointment of bronze into perspective there? And what sort of impact did John Thompson have on your career at that time and even your life going forwards? You know, Coach Thompson displayed a great deal of leadership. You know, obviously we were disappointed that we weren't competing for the gold medal or winning the gold medal. But after the game, we go back to our, our dorms or headquarters, if you will, and it's okay, we have to turn the page. What are we going to do? We have an opportunity to represent our country and one day win a medal. Now, it's not the medal we wanted, but we can definitely add to the medal total for our country. That was the thought process and that was a mindset. And 
going out into that game, we were disappointed. We were mad. We were pissed. There were a lot of different emotions that were running through us. But the only thing that we could do at that point in time was whatever we could to help our team be successful playing against the Australians. We bounced back enough to, to get a win and, and to win the bronze medal at the Olympics. And that's not the goal at hand. We were disappointed with that, but we were also proud to represent our country and win a medal. There's very few people that can say they have an Olympic medal of any gold, silver, or bronze. It's still a fantastic achievement for a, a team comprised fully of amateurs as well. It must be said too. You're playing against professional players across the world at that time. We like to say we paved the way for dream team. That's what we did. The 88 Olympic team paved the way for the dream team moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like to play with a young David Robinson? Obviously, he had to serve his, his Navy tenure and then came into the NBA a few years after. But the impact he had, the incredible skill set he had, like yourself, be able to dribble the ball and be agile up and down the court. Can you just describe for a moment being alongside the Admiral at that time of his career? Playing with David, playing against David in practices, you knew he was special. It was so easy to see. And you fast forward it to he's a Hall of Famer one of the best centers to ever play the game. There are a lot of things that amaze me about David, but his commitment to the military and honoring that commitment and, you know, his body. I mean, if you go back and you look at David's body, it seems like he was doing push-ups all the time. He was chiseled. He could run. He could jump. He could shoot. He could pass. And I was just really impressed with what he was able to do out on the court the size that he was. He was a seven-footer, but David had a narrow frame on him at the time. And to still be able to hold post positioning, look how strong his core was and how developed he was physically, the things that he could do, the timing on blocking shots or catching lobs or step down the perimeter and making shots or dribble moves on the perimeter. And then, of course, his footwork in the post. He was a phenomenal basketball player. And I feel really lucky and fortunate to have the opportunity of playing with him and calling him a teammate at one point. Great to hear you talk about him. Returning, though, to the 88 NBA draft, it was held in late June in New York. The LA Clippers selected you with the number one overall pick. What was likely going through your mind from the moment that Commissioner Stern called your name until you walked up on stage and was shaking his hand? Do you remember the emotions that were going through you? I do remember the emotions that I was experiencing the night of the draft. Before the draft, though, during the lottery process, when the Clippers won the lottery, they held up a Manning jersey. We assumed that I was going to be their pick. Uh, You don't know until you actually hear your name and you walk up on the stage. And so for me, that was a moment in time where I'm looking back on it and I go to New York. I didn't want anybody to go with me. I didn't take my parents. I didn't take my, at the time, girlfriend, who's now my wife. I just went with my agent. And I just wanted to have a me moment. You know, we sit in the green room and they call your name out and fortunate and blessed to have that experience. And then, you know, we, we get a nice dinner. And that was just kind of a, a moment of, wow, I've been very fortunate and very blessed to get to this point. And I know that moving forward, there's a target on your back where you're the number one pick, so to speak. But I realized that not just me, but everybody on the Olympic team had a target on their back because our exhibition games were against NBA teams, NBA all-star teams that they put together to different parts of the country that we would play. And so we got challenged physically by a lot of different players that wanted to see what we're about as players. And so being able to answer the call and let those guys know that I know I'm 
a rookie. I know I'm a young kid, but I want to compete. I'm going to compete. And so that was a great experience for us to segue into our professional career because we bumped heads with some of the best players in the NBA three, four months ago getting ready for the Olympics. That night for me was something I'm very proud of. I'm very fortunate. Um, a lot of gratitude towards my teammates, Coach Brown, obviously, my father for introducing me to the game, and all the people that helped push me, helped prod me to get there, whether it was a teacher, whether it was a coach, whether it was a, a baseball coach or a football coach or an administrator of a principal or a guidance counselor or a librarian. Just the moment of being able to, in my own way, say thank you. I really appreciate what you did to help push and pull me along the way. It's great to hear you elaborate on this, Danny. Thanks so much for sharing your your memories. You mentioned those pre-Olympic exhibition games there. I wasn't going to touch on them because I thought we can't (laughs) cover everything you've done throughout your career, but I know that you played a game in Charlotte, I believe, versus the NBA guys, and obviously being in North Carolina from where you were once playing back in your earlier days in high school, etc., what was that like to go back and, and take them on in Charlotte, for example? That game was a lot of fun from the standpoint of this. When we moved to Lawrence, Kansas, they didn't have Krispy Kreme donuts in Lawrence, Kansas or in Kansas City. And so we're going back to Charlotte. It's been a while now, so I get a chance to get some Krispy Kreme donuts. I was all excited about that. That was one of the biggest biggest highlights of going back to Charlotte for me was, hey, Krispy Kreme donuts. I'm looking forward to this. It was also, I believe, that was the game where they opened up their new arena and the scoreboard fell earlier in the day. You know, that was kind of a, whoa, one of those, woo-wee, that could have been disastrous. Mm. But that just goes into the memory bank. But it was a lot of fun to go back and to, to play in North Carolina. And it actually helped prepare me for my college career of going back and playing NC State in Greensboro and playing at NC State. It was a good experience for me. You mentioned that scoreboard collapse there. There's some incredible photos uh, of that in some of the newspapers I actually had a look at ahead of our chat today. And I've had Kelly Chapuka on the show quite a few years ago, and he was a, a Charlotte Hornet original member. I did ask him briefly about that exhibition series. He was playing for the NBA team. Quite scary that earlier in the day that that happened, and thank goodness no one was actually on the court at the time. Could have been obviously very, very serious. Just in relation to your NBA career, you played five full seasons with the LA Clippers. How jarring was it to transition from living in Kansas to your new way of life as a number one draft pick living in Los Angeles of all places? The transition from going from a college player to a pro player, going from Lawrence, Kansas to LA was extremely terrifying. (laughs) Just a terrifying experience, just in the sense of life, the different things that you get a chance to experience. Now, LA is one of my favorite cities ever to this day, but moving out there, not knowing what was going on, not knowing how to navigate, not knowing how to get to places. It was terrifying. It was. And then on top of that, I'm at a point where I'm comfortably being able to live and have some money in my pocket. And so having to make decisions on what type of house to buy, what type of car to buy, how do you invest your money? How do you, there were so many different things. I'm I'm very thankful. I had a great agent when I started out. His name was Ron Grinker, who passed away, but Ron represented my father. And so Ron was family. I knew Ron all my life. And so having him help navigate the the NBA waters was something that was extremely beneficial to me and very thankful for. 
I did not know that he had links going back that far, Ron Grinker. That's incredible. I actually had a question I planned to ask you about Ron a bit later. Now, in your rookie season, the Clippers went 21-61. and 61. This is the 1989 campaign. You missed the first four games of the season negotiating your contract. Your NBA debut was the team's home opener against the Phoenix Suns. And in that game, you had 12 points. It was an overtime win over the Suns. Eddie Johnson went off and scored 45 points. And he scored those on me. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie's a former guest of the show. He did talk about uh, that particular performance, uh, if memory serves. What do you remember of your pro debut, finally getting to play and actually just stepping on the court for the Clippers? I remember, I think Charles Smith, we were teammates on the Olympic team, threw me an alley-oop and I stuck it in between the backboard and the rim. (laughs) One of my first shot attempts in the NBA. You could just hear the fans like, huh? Oh, wait a minute. What's going on here? And then trying to guard Eddie Johnson. I mean, he had guys, Mark West, great guy, longtime NBA center, huge dude in college. You can navigate screen from some of the big guys a little bit better than I could at that professional level, but they weren't as big and strong as some of those guys. And so Eddie Johnson is one of the better scorers ever played in the NBA, especially during that era we were there. And he was just, I call it betting. He vetted me. If I went High, trying to get over the pick, he he would bump fade and fall out to the corner. If I ran his footsteps, he would tight curl. And so it was just a learning experience. I'm saying to myself, like, I can't guard this guy. What's going on? I, I got to get better. This If this is what the NBA is like every night, oh, my gosh, I'm in trouble. So that was my awakening to the NBA and just trying to, from that point forward, you want to become a student of the game. You want to have a uh, a book in your head of all the guys that you play up against, that you compete up against. And, and that was my moment of saying, hey, we got to figure some things out to be able to compete at this level. I love these stories. Thanks so much for sharing them with us. Unfortunately, your world, we turned upside down barely two months later when you suffered a, a torn anterior cruciate ligament in your right knee in early January of 1989. It was a game at Milwaukee. Initially, it was thought to be a hyperextension However, the worst fears were soon realized and you were operated on about 10 days later. At the time, injuries like that were considered to be career-threatening, to say the least. What advice did your doctor, who I believe was Stephen Lombardo, what did he offer in terms of the rehab that was ahead and your chances of returning to as close to, if not 100%, health on court again? Before we get to Dr. Lombardo, for me, going through that injury and then had a chance to visit with a lot of different doctors and the word was career threatening and, and that was kind of a, a traumatic piece. And so for me, my the conversation with Dr. Lombardo was not like any other conversation I have with any of the doctors. Dr. Lombardo told me, Danny, this is what I can do. This is how I can repair the graph. The graph will be strong. The graph will be better than ever. But this is what you have to do to be able to get back out on the court and play. And it doesn't matter how well of a surgery I perform. If you're not going to be dedicated and committed to this rehab, it'll be hard for you to play again. And so for me, when when I heard that from him, it was like, well, you do your part and I'm going to do my part. And for me, Dr. Lombardo is a godsend. I blew my knee out three times throughout the course of my NBA career, and he did every surgery. And um, you know, that's one of the things that I'm most proud about of my NBA career is being able to bounce back from three ACLs during a 15-year NBA career. Um, very fortunate, very blessed. But I had Dr. Lombardo, like I mentioned, Clive Brewster was a master therapist, Johnny Doyle, Thomas Archie, Carl Horn became my personal trainer and therapist. So I had a lot of great people in my corner, along with my family. 
waking up every day and my wife was there supportive of my kids as I got to the second and third ACL were around and just being around them every day provided great inspiration and motivation. Incredibly tough times and to persevere and push through and forge the career that you did. Uh, fantastic stuff to say the least. Just for some context on that shortened rookie season that you had in the five games before the injury, you were averaging 21 points, eight rebounds and three assists a game. So some really great numbers just prior to that terrible injury taking place. Two weeks after you were injured or thereabouts, the coach at the time, Gene Shu, was replaced by Don Casey, who's an, another former guest of the show, Don Casey. How was your relationship with Don as you were recovering from surgery and eventually eyeing a return to the court later that year? At that point in time, going through that surgery, the medical advances weren't what they are now. And so I was isolated from the team from time to time. I would show up on game days after I got to a point of being comfortable walking and my therapist released me to be able to go and, and visit and, and, and see the games. And so for me, I was kind of quarantined a little bit, if you will, during my early stages of rehab. But Coach Casey was somebody that he was there when, when I first got there and, and I liked him. I thought he was really creative. He was has a nickname of having to do with a lot of zone defenses. So creative in that aspect. But I'm going to give you a little tidbit on Gene Chu. Sure. Gene Chu was my father's first coach in the NBA as well. And he was my first coach. Wow. I didn't actually pick up yeah. on that. That first practice, we've been able to play my first game. Then the next day we practice and I get introduced to the NBA. This is my first practice. So I asked one of the guys on the team, hey, what do I do on this particular play? Coach called. He tells me what to do. Coach calls this play. We go out there and I do what the guy told me. And it was completely wrong. So coach is like, Manny, what are you doing? At that point in time, you're like, my bad, coach. I, I got to learn the plays. I got to get better. I'm sorry. So I go back to the sideline. I go, hey, man, why'd you tell me to do that if you knew it wasn't right? And the guy looks at me and goes, I'm trying to make the team. And I'm saying to myself, wow, this is how this works. All right, well, let me let me figure this out now. <laughs> so that was that was my first practice in the NBA. And then and, and from there, you understand that it's it's a business. Well, and, you know, you run across a lot of great owners and great coaches and great personnel, but you also run across some people that are in a way selfish because of things that they say or how they express themselves, but they're also just trying to provide for their families also. I don't want to throw the person under the bus, but do you remember who the player was? We're not going to throw him under the bus. Fair enough. He got cut later though. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's some terrific insight to hear something like that. I do appreciate you sharing it. You mentioned your agent there, Ron Grinker, another friend of the show, dare I say, Jim McElvain. Yes. He's a Grinker guy. He talked about the close-knit relationship that Grinker had with his clients. Just in terms of the impact, obviously, it seems that Ron had on your life and, and going back as far as being associated with your father, he helped set you up for a great pro career and, and beyond after the retirement came to be. Absolutely. I grew up knowing Ron. I grew up going to Cincinnati in the summers to go to the Xavier basketball camp, University of Cincinnati basketball camp, the Ohio State basketball camp, and spending two to three weeks um, with Ron and, and, and Marsha and, and his family, Taryn and Melissa. And so I would sit in his office and I would hear how he conducted business. I would hear different things that he educated his former players on. I had a chance to reflect back when my father was still playing. He would have my father and other players come to Cincinnati, and he had what he called his own workout or boot camp or training camp, if you will. And he was still doing that when I played my first you know, years in the NBA. We would show up at Cincinnati. The veteran clients of his would put 
everyone through a training camp. We go twice a day. We would lift. We would do aerobic type activities. We um, would do a lot of different things to prepare ourselves mentally and physically for training camp. And, and those were some of the most beneficial workouts I ever had going into NBA training camps because I knew I was ready and prepared. Sounds like a terrific person and was uh, fantastic at what he did as well. Thanks for sharing. I was actually fascinated to read that sometimes during that first rehab from the ACL that you worked out with Clippers GM at the time, the legendary Elgin Baylor. What stands out about some of those interactions that you had with Elgin early in your time with the Clippers and what impact would he have on your time there and beyond? Well, Elgin Baylor, his name is up in the Raptors at the now Staples Center, but before that, the Forum Hall of Famer. And so for him to, to be a mentor, if you will, was something that it took me a while to appreciate because at times it was, this is the GM for the Clippers. That was the mindset. That was a business mindset. And then Elgin was so much more than that. He would pull guys to the side. He'd come out there and shoot some and rebound with you and talk to you. And, and Elgin went through his fair share of injuries as well. So some of the conversations were, hey, you're just going to have to persevere through some of this. There's going to be discomfort. There's going to be times when you, you struggle, but you got to continue to chop wood and stay after it, and then it will all make it worthwhile in the long run. And so for me, that was you know, somebody I, I became comfortable with and been able to go up in his office and, and chop it up with him about ball or about life. Um, and his wife, Elaine, they were, they were very beneficial to me early on in my career. Great stories and uh, memories for you. Thank you. I don't want to focus too much on your ACL, but I know you said it's one of the proudest moments of your career is to be able to fight through three different recoveries. Given the similar nature of your injuries, did you actually speak with the future Hall of Famer Bernard King during your recovery, given that back in about 1985 at Kansas City, actually, Bernard suffered that terrible injury himself and had to fight back through and eventually became an all-star? Bernard was my inspiration coming back from the injury. Bernard and had a college teammate by the name of Archie Marshall, who tore his ACL two times in college and battled back to play. So I knew it was possible. But the talk of Bernard coming back from an ACL injury was something that I, I, I definitely honed in on and, and realized that it, it, it was possible. You have to work hard. And so every time that you know I got a chance to see him as a player, it made me appreciate his game. It made me appreciate the grind that he went through to get back to that level and the confidence and the peace of mind of people being able to say, well, Bernard King came back from that injury. It is possible because before that it was not career threatening. It was career ending. Mm. And that was a mindset. I sat down at one doctor's office and told me I'd never play again before I had the surgery. And it was just like, well, give me my crutches. You, you will not be doing my surgery. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> understandable. You know? And so for me, Bernard King was somebody that I hold in high esteem. He plowed down a road that had not been plowed down and, and created a path for guys that do have ACLs. You mentioned Archie Marshall there. If um, I read correctly somewhere along the way in my research, you wore a wristband with the number 23 written on it. Was it 23, his college number? Yes. To honor uh, him, he hurt himself in the Final Four against Duke in 86, perhaps, and then late 1987, ended up doing the same injury uh, again. Archie was, he was my roommate at times when we were in college. You know, we still stay in touch, probably not as much as we probably like to, but life happens. You know, he was inspiration for me as well. For me, it was just a way of 
having him out there on the court with us. He was on the bench. He was a part of practices. He was traveling with us. He was part of everything. But that was just an idea that came about, facilitated by one of our managers and Bill Pope, who later went on to be a college coach and and now has been a longtime NBA guy who who came up with that idea. So it, it was something just to honor him and to let him know that we appreciated him and, and he was with us every step of the way. Very nice gesture. Your NBA return was in late November of 89. You missed 63 games and you were off court for almost 11 months. I noticed that your comeback game was actually a home game against Milwaukee, the same team you injured your knee against earlier that year. What emotions were you experiencing in the build-up to that return? You scored 21 points in just 20 minutes and you made your first six shots there are even some welcome back Danny towels that were handed out to fans before the game. I was floating in my mind, in my space mentally. I was just happy to be, be able to play basketball again. To have something taken away from you that you love, but you don't know how much you love it, that you don't know how much you appreciate it until all of a sudden it's gone and you realize like, wow, I got to carry myself in a much more grateful way as a person. And so to be able to get back out on that court, a combination of a lot of hard work, a lot of people helped me in my rehab and to get back out there. And I did a lot of my rehab in the sports arena in the off season when the court was still up. I became friends with the guys working there. And, you know, I had a lot of friends that would come play pickup with me or play one-on-one or play two-on-two with me in that venue. There was a lot of comfort there in that gym for me. And to step out on the court was one thing, but to make your first few shots, and then to you know look at the stat sheet when it's all said and done, it was just like it, it felt very rewarding to see that type of production after everything that you, you go through on the rehab side of it. And so for me, it was a proud moment, not something you brag about, but just a proud moment of saying, wow, we put in the work and this is the outcome. Now, in order to continue to have these types of outcome, I got to continue to work because you don't come back from an ACL injury and stop doing the things you did to make it back for that ACL injury. You rehab that injury every day forward for that point for the rest of your career. And so understanding that was was something that it took me a little bit to understand because I thought when I got back, okay, I'm good. I don't have to do any of this rehab stuff anymore. I just get the ball. I get the hoop. And then I realized, wow, I don't have the burst. I don't have the spring. I, I don't have the, the movement that I want. The therapist talks to you. Your doctor talks to you, and it's a fine line of you're playing games, but how much can you actually work out? Because you still got practices on the strengthening part. It was a fine line, and it took me a while to find that balance, but eventually we did because of my great doctors and therapists. I love how you said that you had made friends with uh, people at the arena, and you were going on the court in your own time and, and keeping working on your game. Two weeks before your on-court return, Algin Baylor sent Reggie Williams and the rights to Danny Ferry to Cleveland and in return high flyer Ron Harper and some future picks came to the Clippers. In 28 games with the Clips, Harper averaged 23 points and almost six rebounds, five assists, two and a half steals per game and you'd won six of your last nine games, eight of which were on the road. However, on the same day that he was named the NBA Player of the Week, and scored 33 points against the Hornets. He suffered a season-ending injury eerily similar to yours. He tore his ACL and cartilage in his right knee. What were your immediate thoughts on learning the news of Ron's injury, and and what was he like as a teammate and, and a friend during your time on the Clippers? Because you had some terrific players on those squads, 
but struggled due to obviously the lack of being able to be all together at the same time through all kinds of varied injuries. Very thankful and blessed to have Ron Harper as a friend, as a teammate, as a confidant. Uh, We went through a lot of similar emotions, a lot of similar situations coming back from the ACL. To have somebody that you could look at and knew exactly what you were going through was priceless for me at that point in time. And, and, And hopefully I was that for him. I played more games with him than anybody in my NBA career. And throughout the course of my career, he's the best friend I ever had in the NBA. And I've had some really good friends. So the time we spent together was a godsend because we had a good feel for one another and what we were going through and what we wanted to get back to in terms of the level and be able to compete. We'll jump ahead a little bit. I'm wary of your time. You've been so generous thus far, Danny. In 1992, that was probably a season that defined you and the team at that stage with the Clippers. You were a starter and played all 82 games for the first time, and it was also your best season statistically to date. You averaged almost 20 points, seven boards, four assists a game. And you're also reunited with Larry Brown, who signed as the Clippers coach just before the All-Star weekend in Orlando. How did you react to news that Larry was set to take over from the interim head coach at the time, Matt Calvin, a gentleman who you mentioned earlier on at the start of our chat, who had just replaced Mike Shuler? Coach Brown, before he walks in the door, you know he's going to make you a better player. He's going to make you a better person. And so for me, I, I knew those were things that were going to happen. But also, you're a young man, four or five years into my career, and I don't want to be treated like a college kid anymore, right? I'm not saying that was his intentions, but we had some some differences, if you will, just because I thought, hey, this isn't college anymore in my mind. But at the end of the day, Coach Brown is still a, a teacher. And he was still going to teach and challenge and make us better. And I knew walking in, he was going to make our team better. I knew walking in, he was going to get us to the playoffs. And that was the only thing that we cared about at that point in time. Because at that point in our careers, we came in as young guys together. You know, you go back and you look at the class before me with the Clippers, Reggie Williams, Ken Norman, Joe Wolf. Those are the guys that are there. We walk in the door and we had Charles Smith, Gary Grant, Tom Garrett and myself, we got a strong young nucleus. And it took us a while to figure out how to win, how to be successful, how to put guys in situations to to benefit from team play. That's where we're at. So Coach Brown came in at a great time to add his tutelage, to add his expertise. And we were ready and chomping at the bit to be a team that you had to reckon with. And he got us to that point. You had some great players on those teams over the years, and your Clippers teams were really fun to watch, particularly when it came to those playoff appearances in 92 and 93. You mentioned the 92 playoffs there. It was the first time the Clippers franchise had made the playoffs since moving to LA, and after two double-digit losses in Utah, you returned home for Game 3, and you led the Clippers to a win with 17 points. Now, Game 4 was actually scheduled for April the 30th of 92, however, It was postponed and eventually played at the Anaheim Convention Center three days later on May the 3rd due to the the LA riots that uh, took place in the wake of the Rodney King verdict, a really important historical moment in uh, Californian and USA history. I read that your team was practicing, I think, at Loyola Marymount University in the days prior while the game was postponed and eventually rescheduled. How did you and your teammates deal with those days of unrest as, as violence was erupting around the sports arena where you were meant to be playing. And of course, LA was basically burning to the ground at that stage. Well, I remember the day the verdict came down. 
I was in Inglewood. I had one of my best friends, Tony Harvey, was out visiting me. We were eating at a, a restaurant. And the first verdict comes out and not guilty. And I kind of look at him like, we got to go. He's looking at me like, huh? Like, we got to go. And so by the time we, we get in the car and we get home, then it was full on riots. But for us, it was, it was a traumatic experience, not just as a basketball player, but as, as people to see that type of behavior. And there was no repercussions for it. That was tough to swallow. And then there were a point in time where we had to go back to the sports arena to get our gear because it was still in the locker room game shoes and whatever else. And so you walk into the arena and at that point in time, the military had taken over the sports arena and it become command central. So we're walking down on the concourse, getting ready to go down the steps, escalator, whatever. And you see guys just walking around with rifles on their shoulders and just geared up, ready for war. And it was just like, whoa, wow. And so you're walking through, navigating, getting your stuff and getting out of there. But I remember going back to Anaheim that building was jumping. That was so much fun. Um, crazy thing about it is last year, my wake team, we played there. Oh, really? And so, I, yeah, I remember you get there and you got to go downstairs to the locker room. It's a little bit dingy, a little bit musty in that venue, but that's the history and tradition of it. And so I, I remember, and, and it was it was fun to, to play in that venue. Obviously, we would like to have been on our true home court, but we were able to come away with a couple wins and push it back to Utah, where we eventually lost to the Jazz. Thank you for elaborating on on that period of time. It seems insignificant, I guess, the game itself when all that was happening. But speaking of that incredible game four, I watched it a few days ago just to remind myself of how crazy the crowd was. It's on YouTube. Game four took place, as I said, at the convention center there in Anaheim. It was a frenzied fan base. And I actually read that the Clippers moved the actual home court from Sports Arena and reassembled it on the court in Anaheim, which was unbelievable when I actually first learned that. So you played on your home court in another venue, which is quite remarkable. But even though Carl Malone had an unstoppable game, he had 44 points. You scored 33 points and had 10 rebounds. Ronnie Harper had 26 points and you had Doc Rivers, Charles Smith, Ken the Snake, Norman. They all had double figures as you won a really tense game, 115 to 107. As you said, forced that fifth game back in Utah. What stands out most about that unique situation, playing in front of a packed house, even though it was maybe half the capacity of the sports arena, your fans were just going absolutely wild, and it was probably one of the most underrated and great games that most people haven't even seen throughout the whole 1990s. We thought we belonged. We had a lot of guys that were talented, and we'd come to an understanding of a certain way that we needed to play to be successful, and that's what we were able to do in Anaheim. And the crowd support was tremendous. Anytime you play in the playoffs, it, that's a different level. From a physical standpoint, a mental standpoint, an energy and enthusiasm from the crowd, there's nothing like playoff basketball in the NBA. And that was a good run for us at that particular time. Now, you were named an All-Star for the first time in 1993. You had 10 points and four rebounds in 18 minutes off the bench, and your Western Conference team held on for a 135-132 to 132 win in overtime. How would you describe the feeling of being named an All-Star, given that you've recovered from the ACL tear? And what was your experience like in Utah, Danny? It was a great experience to be named an All-Star. Um, but like I said, teammates put me in position to make that happen. On a personal note, being able to come back from an ACL and make the All-Star team was something that I was extremely proud of. And 
Playing in that first All-Star game was fun. The only thing that was missing was my wife at the time because she was pregnant and she couldn't come. All right. That must have been difficult. That was challenging in itself. It was a good good moment just in terms of to be recognized as one of the best in the game, in the best league in the world. Um, I felt very fortunate. In the 93 playoffs, just briefly, your Clippers again forced a deciding game five in the first round. This time it was against the Houston Rockets and Akeem Olajuwon. Obviously, the following two seasons, they'd win the NBA title. So that was uh, great to take them to a fifth game. It was your second taste of the postseason. But following the 93 season, Coach Larry Brown was replaced by Bob Weiss. Uh, You chose to sign a one-year deal with the Clippers rather than a long-term contract. Would anything have actually kept you playing for more than that one season with the Clippers, or were you just biding your time for for greener pastures after some up-and-down seasons in the first five full years with the Clips? I was looking forward to making the decision of where I got to play. And, And I was not opposed at all to signing back with the Clippers. But I also knew that the history and tradition that the Clippers owner had of not re-signing certain players. And I didn't want to come back to a Clipper team that didn't have the nucleus that we were playing with at that current time. For me, it was, okay, let's let's see some commitments being made to our other free agents or other guys that are about to be free agents. And then I'm okay with being here. I, I like it. I, I want to be continue, be a part of the bill, so to speak. But that didn't happen. I was traded to Atlanta for Dominique Wilkins, which is a completely different experience all in itself. But yeah, I mean, I was not opposed to re-signing with the Clippers, but you know, I wanted some reassurances from the Clipper organization that we were going to continue to, to move in a certain direction and move in a certain way. You were again named an All-Star in 1994, and the game was held in Minnesota. It was 11 days later that the Clippers sent you to the Hawks for Dominique. You were averaging a career high at the time, almost 24 points a game, and you'd finished the regular season with a 19-7 and record in those games you played with Atlanta and you won the Central Division title. How did you adjust from LA to Atlanta given that you had the unenviable task of replacing an icon like the human highlight film, Dominique Wilkins? It was eye-opening. To get traded for Dominique Wilkins, the amount of respect and love that Nick has in the state of Georgia, in the city of Atlanta, it's unreal. He, he will go down as one of the most beloved sports icons in the state of Georgia and the city of Atlanta, without question. And so for me, I go into it, wow, this team really wants me. They wanted me to be a part of what they're doing to getting introduced. I didn't play the first game I was there. There was a certain amount of time that had to lapse before the trade was made. And you had to take your physicals and, and get all this type of paperwork done. So I didn't play, but I got introduced. And so they introduced me and I walk out there to half court. I got the cheerleaders kind of walk you out there and I got booed. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, what the hell? I'm, I'm a part of this team now. And so for that to happen, it was one of those deals where it's like, wow, Dominique was really beloved in this area and they're going to miss him. And at that point, it was, I have to do everything in my power to keep our team being successful because I'm not going to be Dominique. I knew that. I wasn't the athlete. I was not dynamic and explosive as he was, but I knew I could help our team continue to win games. And that was my mindset. And so for me to get traded and be a part of a team that won the Central Division Championship. Um, and not have any real fall off when Nick left and I joined the team was something that as a player, I felt really happy to be a part of. And then, you know, I got a chance to play for a Hall of Famer, Lenny Wilkins as well. In that 1994 playoffs, you'd end up being eliminated by Indiana in the second round, but 
in the last year or so, footage has emerged of the round one fight in game two between the Hawks and the Heat. Dwayne Farrell and Grant Long got into it in a confrontation, and then that spilled across the court and mayhem ensued. Do you mind just talking about your experience from what you observed in that game? I did more than observe. I, I contributed to the melee. <laughs> you don't give up layups in postseason play. Nothing's easy. You got to go to the free throw line. And so I committed a couple what they call flagrant fouls, protecting the rim, not letting guys shoot layups that at that time was not an ejection. <laughs> and so for us, that kind of set the tone for what the playoffs were all about. And then, you know, we, we get into that melee and it goes from one end of the court down to the other. It was looking back on it, dangerous. But at the time that you're in it, you don't know. You just want to protect your teammate and have your teammates back and make sure that they're doing okay. And so that's kind of how, how I look at it. But I've had players that I've coached in the past pull up those clips and go, hey, Coach, y'all were a little wild back then. What was going on with all that? And I was <laughs> like, hey, man, it happens. It happens. You mentioned Lonnie Wilkins. I think he was right in amongst it, trying to separate you. Your very good friend, Craig Elo, was also involved. You were rushing onto the floor to try and protect him and – but yeah, it was it was wild, and I was just curious on your thoughts on it. So thank you for entertaining the answer there. In early September of 94, you signed as an unrestricted free agent, I believe, with the Phoenix Suns, and you'd play for five seasons in the Valley of the Sun. Unfortunately, only 46 games into your tenure there, you were dealt another huge setback, suffering a torn ligament in your left knee this time at a practice session at uh, America West Arena. You might have bumped into Joe Klein. How did you react to that incident? The previous four games before you did that, you were averaging 23 points and almost nine rebounds a game for Phoenix. When I blew my knee out the second time in practice on the practice court, it was it was a tough situation for a lot of different reasons, but more so because I finally thought I was back at a level of play that I was really happy with. And so then to, to see that all vanish and go, okay, I got to do it again in terms of the rehab. The rehab didn't bother me because I've done it before. I knew it. Okay, I got this. I know what I got to do. But I did have a pity party one night for myself. It was it was upset. It was troubling um, to know that I've gotten back to an all-star level and now I've gone through another ACL. That was a moment. I had a bad night one night and then the next day it was okay. On to the next. Let's get better. I know what I have to do. I've done it before. It'll just be a matter of time before I'm back out there again was my mindset. I read numerous newspaper articles and clearly President Jerry Colangelo and the Suns franchise were very supportive of you in the wake of that terrible injury again. How crucial was that support and obviously the following seasons that you played with the Suns as your tenure with them continued? Extremely important. Jerry Colangelo was the reason that I chose Phoenix. He was an owner that had a great reputation my agent, Ron Grinker, knew of him, knew him well. And it was kind of a, a roll of the dice, if you will, because I had been offered multi-year deals by Atlanta and by the Clippers. And I just didn't feel that they were fair market value for where I was at in my career. And so I signed a one-year deal to go to Phoenix. And we were playing really well. We had one of the best records in the NBA at that point in time, playing with Kevin Johnson and Charles Barkley, of course, and Dan Marley and the rest of the crew. And so to blow my knee out there, I'm sitting on the training table in the training room and, I, and I'm like, I signed a one-year deal. I signed a one-year deal. I signed a one-year deal. Like, well, what was I thinking? 
And so in the midst of that mindset, closing my eyes and reminiscing about how it happened, the guys were all around me at the training table. And then it got quiet and it got a little eerie. And I opened my eyes, I didn't see anybody. And then Jerry Colangelo appeared. He touched me and said, hey, I won't forget the commitment you made to us. And at that point, it's just like, that's great to hear. But what does that mean? And so for me, Jerry Colangelo is a godsend. He's someone I have a tremendous amount of respect for because in the midst of my comeback from that ACL, after he saw me and the the team saw me in training camp, they signed me to a long-term contract extension. And so I was something I'm very happy, grateful, and thankful for. So Jerry Colangelo in my book will always be one of the best owner that I've ever had a chance to deal with. I'm really pleased to hear that, and that's a fantastic story. In February of 96, you returned to the court and you played out the season. Your sons were knocked out in round one of the playoffs by the Spurs. In 97, it was a season of transition for the Suns. You, you started 0-8, and, and after that, Danny Ainge replaced Cotton Fitzsimmons as coach, and then you ended the year 40-42, and 42, losing in the first round of the playoffs to the Sonics. But 1998 is the one I'd love to talk about. As a testament to your perseverance, uh, you were named NBA Sixth Man of the Year. It was bittersweet, however, what's coming. Coming off the bench in, in 59 of your 70 regular season games, you averaged almost 14 points, six boards, two assists, and one steal per game. It was only six games before the playoffs were about to start, and then you were struck down by a third ACL injury. This time, it was in your original knee, the right knee. How did it feel to be recognized as the league's best sixth man, Danny? Well, I was happy. But during that season, coaching staff came to to me and, and Dan Marley. We were starting and said, I think you guys will be better for our team coming in off the bench. And so that was a role that we weren't crazy about, but we accepted. <laughs> so for me to be named sixth man of the year, that was, that was a goal. That was a pie in the sky. Well, I want to be the best at what I do. So if I'm going to be coming off the bench, I want to be the best bench player there is. And that was a mindset. But I knew a lot of things had to work out well for me, but I had great unselfish teammates and it kind of worked out. So that was certainly a moment that I'm fond of as well in terms of my accomplishments in the NBA. I read somewhere that you had a panther tattoo on your right ankle as a reminder of what you endured throughout your career and some of the, the trials and tribulations that you've had. Every time I blew my knee out, when I would come back, I got a different tattoo. Oh, okay. You got and more so, than one. Right, yeah. One was a panther. I wanted to kind of have that mentality out on the court. Ferocious, sleek, aggressive animal. The second time, I got a shark. Same reason. And then the last time, I got a tattoo, kind of a made-up symbol or logo. And for me, it means the heart to ball. So it's a letter D to a heart and a basketball. It looks terrible now, but it it (laughs) held a lot of significance for me as a player. So every time I came back, I I got a tattoo. That was kind of my, in my own way, my rite of passage of making it back to that level. Great to hear you elaborate on this. Thank you so much. How did your medical treatment in 1998 compare to your first ACL injury back in 89? You briefly touched on it. What were the advances like in the almost 10 years between the first and third one? Progressed in terms of a lot more aggressive in the rehab. Going through it the first time in 1989, 1990, it was, you know, we're going to take it real slow. We're going to follow the book. And we followed the book on all of our rehab. 
protocols, but the needle was pushed a little bit more. The technology of how you take care of your body, the modalities that you could put on to help strengthen your leg were things that had changed quite a bit. And so for me, when I went through my second ACL, let me go back a little bit, I built a weight room at my house, a freestanding building behind my house. And that's where I did all my rehab with my therapist, Carl Horn. And so we had every unit imaginable that we needed to rehab an ACL and maintain the previous injury ACL. And so for me, that investment was something that I'm so happy that I made because it gave me a chance to play 15 years. And so when I blew it out the third time, it was, okay, this is an old hat. I've done this before. It sucks. You got to go through it again, but I know what I got to do. So let's get after it. I'd love to just test your memory on one specific play from your career. I'll mention a few words and see if you can pick up on which play I'm referring to. It's at McNichols Arena. Oh, yes. I got it. I got it. You got it. I got it. Antonio McDice. That's the one. (laughs) He made, hey, Dice made me look pretty good. There was a fast break. I don't know if Rex Chapman threw the outlet pass to me. It took off on me, and I I wasn't running as fast as Rex thought I was. (laughs) And so I'm trying to catch up to the basketball. And by the time I get to the basketball, I can't come to a stop. For some reason, I look over the corner of my shoulder and I see dice trailing. So I actually just kind of flip it up over my head around the rim vicinity. Antonio McDice was a tremendous athlete. Could jump, run, shoot it. I mean, he was he was so good. And he just bounces up in the air and makes a terrific athletic play and slams it home. That was probably my favorite assist. Anything but just throw it up by the rim and he did all the work. Oh man. Such an incredible play and one that sticks in my mind from seeing it on NBA Action back in 1998. It was the number one assist of the year. With oh, Kim wow. Fager. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, All yeah. Right, cool. I'm so glad that you picked up on that almost immediately. I'll just quickly fast forward. The final years of your career, you completed rehab again and played every game at the lockout-shortened 99 season. Proud moment to play in all those games because we had a couple back-to-back-to-backs. Yeah, that's right. So you played all 50 regular season games. You played the three playoff games. After coming back from your third ACL, yeah, it's incredible that you can just get back and, and get it straight into it again the following season. The lockout year for me was beneficial in the sense that it gave me more time to rehab my injury. That rehab, like I said, the advancements medically, you were a little bit more aggressive, but it was still gave me a chance to come back around the 11th month mark, which is what I did the first two surgeries too. Probably could have come back. No, I would have been able to come back a little bit sooner, but I got overzealous one day on my physical therapy and I was feeling really good and did more than I should have. That ended up setting me back about a month or so. But I mean, coming back and playing in that short lockout season was something I was extremely proud of, not missing any games that year. Mm, Yeah, I was really impressed when I looked back at Basketball Reference and looked at your game log, 50 games, all 50 regular season and played the three playoff games. So just a remarkable staying power, really. In early August of 99, Phoenix traded you and some future picks to Orlando for Penny Hardaway, which I'd completely overlooked in my memory. And then a few weeks later, you were dealt with Dale Ellis, another friend of the show, shameless self-promotion there, to Milwaukee <laughs> in return for Chris Gatling and Armand Gilliam. Was there ever a possibility that you were going to be staying in Orlando or was the deal sort of set in place to then send you straight on to Milwaukee once the pieces fell into place? I was traded. I was on vacation with my family. We were in the Bahamas. We were at the Atlantis Resort. And see, we get traded. 
get a phone call. We need you to come to Orlando for the press conference. So I ended up cutting my vacation a day short. My wife and my kids stayed the duration. And I get to Orlando, and Doc Rivers is the coach there. In the midst of conversation, he goes, we need you to come in for the press conference, but we're going to trade you before the season starts. Mm. And I'm like, well, damn, you could have told me that, and I could have stayed on vacation. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I didn't need to come here for the, just the press conference. We could eventually have that. But anyways, <laughs> so no, I knew I was not going to be in Orlando. I didn't know where I was going to get traded. And then Dell and I got traded to Milwaukee. That was a different experience for me because my first five years, L.A., half a season, Atlanta, five years, Phoenix. And then we go to the frozen tundra of Wisconsin. <laughs> that took some getting used to. <laughs> yeah. I was in Milwaukee in 1994 in January with some Australian guys on an NBA tour just watching games, and it was brutally cold. I've never experienced cold like it, I don't think. Yeah, that was the first time I experienced it too. The water coming off that lake. After my tenure there was up in a year, I really started to enjoy Milwaukee because I would go back in recruiting because they had great events there. And I, I really liked it. You know, I liked the city of Milwaukee, but I was not ready for the LA, Atlanta, Phoenix transition to Milwaukee. I, I was not ready for that. I had to change up my gear. I had to go get some real winter clothes and some real, real winter boots. And uh, yeah, make sure I had shovels in my driveway to try to be able to get out if I needed to. You played for George Carl's Bucks in that 2000 season. You signed as a free agent with Jerry Sloan and the Jazz in 2001, and you played every game again that season before you joined as a free agent with Don Nelson and the Mavericks in 2002. Your final season was with the Detroit Pistons in 2003, the team led by Rick Carlisle. Just one season later, Larry Brown returned to Detroit and the Pistons would win the title in 2004. Was there ever a possibility that you could have been part of the team in that season or that wasn't even on your radar? I had an opportunity to go back to the Pistons at that point in time and I made the decision not to. You know, obviously regretting it and kicking myself um, because I would have had an, a world championship ring because they won the, the championship the following year. But for me, it, it came down to my family. My son and my daughter were at a point where we wanted to give them more stability. My son was in fourth grade and had not been in the same school for a whole year. And so for me, that, that kind of weighed out for me. And so I retired and he had a chance to, to get comfortable. And my daughter also and, and finish up junior high and high school before being uprooted again. That was definitely part of the thinking, but also knowing that I had an opportunity to win a championship creeps in my mind from time to time to be a part of a championship team is something I do think about. A very quick overview of your post-playing days. You joined your alma mater, Kansas, and spent four years in a student-athlete development and then team management role. And then you joined Coach Bill Self as an assistant with the Jayhawks. You won a, an NCAA title in 2008 as an assistant. In 2012, you accepted a head coaching position at Tulsa, and you were named the Conference USA Coach of the Year in 2014. Then later that same year, took over as head coach at Wake Forest and parted ways with the school after six seasons earlier this year. Do you hope to return to the coaching ranks in college or perhaps at the NBA level one day? What plans are you looking at in the years to come, Danny? After I was let go at Wake Forest this year, I, I've had 
a lot of wonderful friends reach out to me and offer me positions, a few at the collegiate level and, and one professionally. I wanted to put myself in a situation where I continued to grow and develop, and I would have done all those things in any of those situations, but I thought, I want to be involved in the game of basketball, and I want to share my passion and what little insight I do have with the basketball community. And so for me, that would led to the decision of what I'm doing now, which is being a college basketball analyst on ESPN, which I'm really enjoying. And to answer your question, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know I want to be involved with the game of basketball on some type of level. You've definitely got more than a little insight. I can tell you that much as experience over the last 90 minutes. You've been so generous with your time. How's it been working in front of the camera in a role where you're analyzing and talking about the game you love rather than being on the sidelines directing the team and also obviously prior to that being the main person running the teams on the court? It's been a lot of fun. It's been challenging because when I prepare to go into the studio and talk basketball, as a coach, it's just this team right here. It's our opponent. We'll break them down. We'll know everything that we can find out about them and have a good feel for them. As an analyst, it's 15 games maybe that you got to have some type of knowledge of because you don't know what game is going to kick off into something special. You don't know what game where a player is going to have a career night. So you have to have a level of familiarity with all of them. And so that's probably been the most challenging thing is making sure that, and it's still hard, the pronunciations of the names of certain guys that you come across. But I enjoy it. I mean, I've been with some great hosts. Dallin Cuff has been really good. Timmy, Matt Berry, VC. These guys have been really good. And then Sean Farnham has been my partner every day that I've been on. And he's helping educate me. He actually showed me how to put on my makeup. Because <laughs> I shine a little bit. I'm probably shining now. But yeah, Sean, Sean showed me how to put on my makeup. So those guys at ESPN have been terrific. And the support staff, the producers have made it easy for me. I'm a rookie in this profession, and so I just want to learn as much as I can and share my insight. That's uh, great. I wish you every success going forwards with your media role too. Just two final things I love to ask guests when they appear on the show. Basketball Digest had a regular feature which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. We may have covered it already, but from your immense career in basketball, either as a player, coach, is there one particular game that stands out above uh, all others? No, there are a few games, to be honest with you. Every game that I was able to come back from the ACL and playing that first game back was special. Obviously, playing in a national championship game in college was special. Playing in NBA All-Star games was something that I hold great value in and very proud of. The career scoring, the career nights that you had, that's, that's nice, don't get me wrong, but I think the other things mean a little bit more. I had one triple-double in my NBA career. So that'd probably be the game I felt like I was the most complete. Your career high scoring in the NBA was maybe 43. I think you might have dropped on the Bulls in the 93-94 season as a member of the Clippers. I was going to ask you about that. That's a fantastic effort. Do you have any particular significance in the jersey numbers that you wore throughout your career? It was 25 in high school and at Kansas. Before the injury with the Clippers, you wore 25 and then transitioned to number five. You also had number five in Atlanta, 15 at Phoenix, 25 with the Bucks, 15 in Utah, 6 at Dallas, and number 5, I believe, with the Pistons. A bit of a theme there with the digit 5. Yes, there is. <laughs> Growing up, 25 was a number I had in college, and so I got that my rookie year in the NBA, and then when I blew my knee out, 
kind of have to reinvent yourself. And so I went with number five. And I was that number. Go to Atlanta, I'm still number five. And then everything else was just kind of a, I couldn't get five. So, all right, I like 15. You know, if I can't get that 25, I go back to my number. Number six in Dallas was just a, a play on 15. And so that was kind of kind of the mindset. And then my last year playing with the Pistons, five was the only number that I liked that was available. Gotcha. Thank you very much. Danny, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I really appreciate the time you've afforded me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation even half as much as I did chatting to you. Thanks so much for being on the show. And I hope maybe one day again we can chat some more old school basketball. I appreciate you having me on and I enjoyed it. Enjoy going down memory lane with you. And so thank you very much and wish you continued success. Take care, man. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Send me an email. Audio clips are welcome. In all airness at gmail.com. Time to share another great review from a fan of the show. Thanks to Bring the Heater 87. And now I'm very confident that's not his or her real name via Apple Podcasts in the USA. A very short and sweet review. It's titled Awesome with four exclamation marks and it's rated five stars. And it simply reads, Thank you with four more exclamation marks. Much appreciated. Bring the heater. Worldwide, the show has 175 ratings on Apple Podcasts with an average of four and a half stars with 91 reviews across all providers. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. As I love to say, your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it as your word-of-mouth recommendations are truly worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply email me inallairness at gmail.com. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. Search for In All Airness, three words, on your podcast app of choice. The show is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Overcast, Android, and more. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.